0: To those assembled in the Sterling R. Church Auditorium on the campus of Southern Utah University, and to those listening statewide on Utah Public Radio, welcome to the US Second District Congressional Debate presented by the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service and Utah Public Radio. I'm Chris Holmes, Southern Utah's correspondent for Utah Public Radio, and I will moderate tonight's debate. With me is Eric Kirby, Executive Director of the Levitt Center, along with SUU students Lauren Wood And Sky Rosedahl together we'll pose the questions for the candidates tonight. In a moment, Eric Kirby will outline the format for tonight's debate and we will introduce the participants, but first we acknowledge the underwriting sponsors whose generosity makes possible tonight's debate and its statewide broadcast on Utah Public Radio, the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service at SUU, Southern Utah University's Office of Regional Services, and Southern Utah University. Our thanks once again to our underwriting sponsors. And now I'll introduce to you Eric Kirby, Executive Director of the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service, who will explain how tonight's debate will proceed. Eric. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: on behalf of the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service, we welcome you to tonight's U.S. Congressional debate. Tonight's debate will focus on a broad array of issues. The candidates have not seen the questions. The format will be as follows. We will allow a two-minute introduction from each candidate. We will allow a minute and a half response to each question. A 30-second rebuttal will be permitted when a specific candidate is mentioned in another candidate's response. A two-minute closing will be allowed by each candidate at the end of the debate. We will hold up signs indicating how much time remain for each response and when time has expired. We ask the audience to hold their applause until the end of the debate. We will rotate which candidate first responds to each particular question. The candidate to the audience's right, the candidate's left, will then be the next to respond. As this debate is being broadcast live throughout the state of Utah, there will be a minimum of two commercial breaks during the debate. Please remember to silence your electronic devices. Again, we welcome the candidates and those in the audience.
0: Thank you, Eric. Uh, Let's introduce the candidates. On the stage uh, to the audience's left is uh, Charles Kimball. Charles is not affiliated with any particular uh, political party. He is uh, running as an independent candidate and he resides in Salt Lake City. Next in, Chris Stewart is the Republican candidate for this seat and he resides in Farmington uh, in the center is Jay Segmiller, who is the Democratic uh, candidate for this seat, and he resides in Sandy, Utah. Next is Jonathan Girard, is the Constitution uh, candidate for this seat and resides in Tooele. And Joseph Andrade is also an unaffiliated uh, candidate for this seat. He also resides in Salt Lake City. Thank you all for being with us. Uh, We once again thank those in attendance here at the Sterling Church Auditorium and those listening from around the state on Utah Public Radio. To the candidates and voters, just a word about time limits. Uh, True it is that uh, freedom of speech is a fundamental tenet of our democracy. Uh, And each of you is welcome to speak on as long as you want to in various venues uh, and on your own time, but tonight each of you have chosen to participate in this venue, and your presence here implies your willingness to abide by the format as it has been explained. Time limits on responses are to allow as many questions as possible in the time allotted, but perhaps more importantly, uh, it puts all candidates on an equal footing, which I would assert is also a basic tenet of our American democracy. We will begin with a two minute opening statement from each of the candidates starting with Mr. Kimball.
2: Again, my name is Charles Kimball and I am an independent candidate running for the second congressional district. I entered this race because I believe political consensus and collaboration requires a devolution of power, a willingness to share ideas, to share results, to share success, and even to share failure, consensus, calls for some courage and a bit of faith in each other that the goal of the common good overcomes any ideological difference, but sadly, this is not the case. The voice of the working class citizen has been replaced by the din of political bluster that drowns out reason, drowns out ethics, and drowns out accountability, and all are under the guise of patriotism. Furthermore, the idea that solutions to the issues of this, that this country faces are the property of a two-party system. Bent on commoditization of power is patently wrong. We need independent process. We need to ensure that democracy stays open. That's why I entered this race. I, take, cap, I cap my donations. I cap my ideas around the center that the voice of the people matters, independence matters, and of the people, for the people, and by the people matters. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Chris, for hosting us here tonight. Thank you all for coming. My name is Chris Stewart. I am the Republican candidate for Congress here in the second district, and uh, we are grateful for this opportunity to be here at the Levitt Center and on SUU campus. This is a great example of why democracy works, why we are the greatest nation ever to be blessed this this land I think there's something that we all can agree on and that is this is a critical time in our nation's history that's not a Republican feeling that's not a just a conservative feeling that's universal I think not only throughout this district and the state but through our nation we will determine who we are as a people we will determine the the path of our nation for generations yet to come by what we do in this election during this time. But then we ask, well, what do we do? If this is such a critical time and the challenges we face, what do we do? How do we fix them? And I'd like to share with you tonight why I think that I can help. First, I grew up on a family farm with 10 children. My campaign staff tell me I'm the cheapest man they've ever met. I think that's a beautiful thing. For heaven's sakes, if you're looking to send someone back to Washington, send the person who understands the value of a dollar. I served for 14 years as a pilot in the military. We've been reminded over the last four weeks that we still live in a very dangerous world. Less than 20% of Congress has any military experience. They need to hear my voice. I've been the CEO of a company that works primarily in energy development. I know how to create jobs. I have created jobs, and I understand how the government has their boot on the throat of small business. And finally, I've written most of my adult life about American exceptionalism in one way or one fashion or another. If you still believe in America, if you still believe in the American dream, then help me save the American dream. That's what this election is about. Thank you.
4: Yes. uh Hello, Mike. Okay, um, my name is Jay Segmiller and uh, I'd like to thank uh, SUU and the Levitt Center for hosting this event. Uh, and uh, first off, I grew up in uh, Salt Lake City area. I've lived my entire life in the, in the state of Utah. I, uh, right out of high school, started working for the Union Pacific Railroad and actually worked out of Milford, Utah, just down the road here a little bit for a while. And um, I'm currently a conductor on Amtrak's California Zephyr. I served in the Utah State Legislature uh, back in 2008. I was elected, and I'm the only candidate in the race that has any legislative experience. Um, One of the key parts of my campaign is uh, job creation. Uh, we need to create jobs. I've crossed all throughout the district talking to business owners, trying to find out what they think they need to be su- successful. Two, two common things came up during that, uh, those travels. One was that they needed to have people who were educated in the skills that they need. Uh, a lot of these uh, businesses do, are unable to find people with the right skills. So we need to make sure that we are funding education properly so that we can get uh, employees working in the the, the right skill sets. Um, Secondly, they said we need more people working so that they can afford to buy the products from us. And I have a plan that would bring uh, $2 trillion from overseas that private companies are holding uh, in overseas banks would create three million jobs. It would not involve any taxpayer money. And that's a key element of my, my game plan. And my time is up, thank you. Yes, thank
5: you for hosting this tonight, SUU and the Michael Levitt Center for Politics. Um, he who desires to be ignorant and free desires what never was and what never will be by Thomas Jefferson. We need to learn the constitutional principles which govern our land. And then we need to hold our elected officials accountable to these principles. As we do this, our nation will be blessed by the hand of providence. Now, my parents instilled values into my character when I was young. They taught me how to work hard for what was important. They stressed fairness, kindness, integrity, and honesty in my upbringing. I learned principles of truth from my parents. These principles have guided my actions throughout my life and I have applied them to all situations. Government has not been an exception to this. The framework of our government is based on principles and values. This framework teaches us what the proper role of government is. To effectively govern, one should learn this framework and follow the principles upon which it is based. I found that too often these principles are disregarded. The power and money involved in politics today overshadows them. Freedom is generally lost as a result to this. I cannot sit back and watch my children's freedom slip away. I want them to enjoy what I have enjoyed. We need elected officials that will stand for principles over politics. Our elected officials need to be statesmen and not politicians. I'm willing to devote my time and talent to being a statesman and support the principles which made our country great and which also allowed it to experience the most freedom of any other nation.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Andrade.
6: My name is Joe Andrade and I'm running as an unaffiliated candidate for the District 2 Congress seat. Um, Thanks to SUU and the Levitt Center for doing this. This is the only debate to be held this election season among all five District 2 candidates. It's a very unique event and I think the first of its kind. Uh, So thank you very much. It's really a very, very important event. I was last, uh, I've been at SUU many times and I was last, not last, but I mean I was here in late April. I had the opportunity to speak to a technology forum and fair. Uh, primarily of high school students uh, in the School of Technology and Engineering. And that talk dealt with creating the future rather than just trying to inherit it and being fearful of it. Um, And so much of that is reflected in my platform. Uh, Being unaffiliated, that means no party, no dollars, no platform written by a committee uh, for which I have issues and and problems. I'm running because Congress is broken. Congress is corrupt. There's an enormous flow of money that goes through Congress, lobbyists and beyond, uh, leading to special interests, loopholes, a completely unfair playing field, and the gridlock and problems that we've been experiencing uh, in recent times. That's the main reason I'm running. I'm also running for the kids, for the children, your kids, grandkids, for a sustainable economy. We've been trashing this planet and we've been trashing our values. And we have to stop that. We have to leave a little bit of both for those who come after us. So look at 2 There's some cards and bumper stickers and some t-shirts and lawn signs, which will be useless after November 6th, right outside the door. Help me, we can really address some of these problems.
0: Thank you, uh, gentlemen. Uh, We will now proceed with the questions. Candidates, once again, your responses should be limited to one and a half minutes or less in response to the questions so as to permit us to cover as many questions as possible. Laura?
7: Mr. Stewart, we will start our first question with you. What are the one or two core political beliefs that motivate you? Are there any thinkers, philosophers, or authors who have been influential in forming your political beliefs?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely there have. Uh, there's a number of them, actually. Regarding your question of philosophers first, I have had the blessing of my life of being able to spend a good part of my adult life writing books. Uh, I've written 15 books. The last couple have been uh, nonfiction dealing with U.S. history and world history. Uh, I have a, a good friend in, in the media. He and I argue all the time over who was the greatest president of the United States, George Washington, or Abraham Lincoln. He prefers George. I preferred Abraham Lincoln, and that's uh, that's I think who has shaped my thinking. Uh, someone who has displayed enormous courage in in uh, the most challenging and the most adversarial circumstances that our nation has ever found itself, and yet he was gracious, and he always had faith in America's future, and I think that's that has. Uh, that has been such a great example to me and to many others right now. Look, we're in challenging times right now. Uh, But it's important to remember, we've been through much, much greater challenges before them in in our nation's history. We're going to get through this. Um, I mean, the reason I got into this race is because I believe in our future. I believe in the American dream, and I know we can fix this. And it's good for us to keep in mind, as challenging as these times might be, we are the United States of America. We've been through more than this before, and we've always come out as that great shining light on the hill, as Abraham Lincoln said, uh, we are the last best hope on earth. And I think if we keep that in mind, it gives us some perspective and helps us, uh, helps us keep our, our politic and our, and our voice reasonable. Thank you, Mr.
4: Segmuller. Well, um, Probably the person that's uh, guided me the most is my father. Uh, I was taught really young. Uh, I came home from school upset about something, and, and my father asked me what I was going to do about it, and I says, well, I can't do anything. And he says, oh, yes, you can. You can, you can get a petition. You can do this. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. And he says, well, then don't complain. Um, it was a lesson that I learned uh, very young, and it's gotten me involved in, Politics has gotten me involved in, in school uh, issues. It's gotten me involved in all kinds of things. And it's the reason that I'm running. I'm very frustrated with what's going on in, in Washington, D.C. I think um, we need to be able to find ways to make principal compromises. I know that we can move forward. Uh, we're in some tough times right now. And the, the way we get through tough times and the way we've done it in the past is by bringing the country together, not pulling it apart. And right now, I, I see what's going on in Washington DC as pulling our country apart. We need to start finding what we can agree on and move forward with those things that we can agree on. And if there's some things that we can't agree on, we need to continue to discuss those and try to find solutions to those problems. But right now, um, we've got to change the way we do things in Washington, D.C., and I want to be back there in the forefront on that.
7: Thank you. Mr. Gerard.
5: Yes, thank you. Um, one of the people that really did change my core belief here is by a study of the Founding Fathers' words. Um, I've taken the time over the last 20 years to study their words, and I am impressed with what I saw. A, a group of individuals that had diverse backgrounds came together, and they provided an astounding document that has governed this nation for well over 200 years. Um, so, definitely, they are one of the things that have influenced me. I have watched us move away from that as we've we've continued to uh, operate our government here. There's another person more recent times that I look up to and that would be W. Cleon Skousen. Um, I first started with his book The 5,000-Year Leap and I really enjoyed that. Uh, it taught me a lot of things about government and how it's supposed to work and how it is best to work to allow freedom but also to govern people as well. And those beliefs were also instilled with my parents as well. They, they taught me these things as I was a child growing up. Thank, Thank you. you.
7: Thank you. Mr. Andrade?
6: Yes, I'm running in large part against fantasy and wishful thinking, just overly looking back and assuming things can be and will be the same. I'm running for transparency, reality, and practical solutions. So the person in history that I think most influences me and inspires me is Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense and the Rights of Man. And basically what Thomas Paine said, and I have it in my platform and in almost everything I print, I offer nothing more than simple facts, plain arguments, and common sense. The other one that's influenced me greatly is Thomas Jefferson, particularly the Declaration of Independence. I would urge everyone to read that, even more so than reading the Constitution, because it sets the spirit of what this place should be, and it's a spirit we have lost.
7: Thank you. Mr. Kimball.
2: You know, throughout my adult life and through my academic career, I've I've read a lot. I'm, there are there are modern philosophers that inspire me. Charles Taylor, I can think of the essayist Tony Jutt. Um But primarily, I would say first off, my my parents. My my father dropped out of school during the Great Depression and went on to raise thirteen children, six of whom have, who have advanced degrees. Um, but more importantly, I think the thing that inspires me to do what I do is my daughter. She is 20 years old and I run because what we do here will directly impact what she does with her life and with her grandchildren. So there is this optimism that she instills in me that says, you know, no matter what our struggles are, we can persevere provided we work together. So, I mean, there's a number. So primarily probably my parents and my daughter.
7: Recently, President Obama issued an executive order stating that his administration would no longer deport certain young undocumented immigrants who entered the United States as children so long as they met certain requirements. Do you agree with this approach? What approach would you take with dealing with immigrants reform? Mr. Segmill, where you start?
2: I,
4: I think that this is a good idea. I think that... Um I would certainly support the Dream Act, as um, uh, Orrin Hatch has at, at times in his career, and uh, I, th- I think it's a very positive step forward in in immigration, and it's something that I definitely support. Yes. Uh, yes, on the executive
5: on the executive order, am I on? Am I on? Okay, on the executive order um, that has been signed as permitting children to be here, um, their parents were breaking the law entering here. And as such, I would not want to separate the parents and the children. Uh, So what I would suggest to us on this policy is that we need to give them a time period for them to get their affairs in order, um, maybe two years time period, where they can sit there and sell their items that they have acquired here, move back to their country of origin, and then reapply to come to the United States legally. And if they do this, uh, we would gladly accept them. Now, if they stay longer than that two year period, uh, then they would be prosecuted by the current law, and that's my suggestion.
6: This is a cliche, I know, but we are a nation of immigrants. There may be a Native American or two in this uh, audience, but with the exception of those people, we all are descendants of immigrants. My own family came over about the early 20s from uh, from Portugal. Um, I think legally, but I'm not even sure about that. So immigrants have been very important to this nation to the diversity and the entrepreneurship and the creativity and the cultural aspects so I'm not um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very for developing means and plans to encourage some level of immigration and uh, to deal with the illegality uh, that we have now I do support the DREAM Act I think those kids who have done very well and came over under no Uh, uh, you know, that they had no choice in that matter, uh, should not be um, 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 prosecuted or or deported. The immigration problem is an economic problem. They come across because there are economic uh, opportunities here that aren't in their own country. The emigration has actually slowed dramatically because of our own economic problems. So I think we need a hemispherical program to actually deal with economic development of the entire hemisphere. And once you stop, once you have that dichotomy in economic opportunity uh, diminished, the immigration will simply stop. Nobody wants to come here and leave their family and their culture behind.
2: What the DREAM Act... But I think what we're really talking about is the criminal element that comes across our borders and makes our communities unsafe. We're not talking about the migrant workers that work in our farms and work in our, on our ranches and work in our restaurants, all these things that we gladly enjoy, but we're talking about the criminal element, so we, we really need to separate out who we're addressing, and if we're looking at the criminal aspect of it all, then we need to address that through cross-border collaboration on dealing with some of our crimes. And so, um, I agree. I would agree with Joe that I, that it is an economic problem, and that we what we need to do is we need to create more opportunities th- through NAFTA, through trade, through education in Mexico and Central America and also create more opportunities here so that we don't have to create that enemy within when we're we're experiencing an economic downturn.
7: Stuart?
3: You know, it's the fundamental responsibility of our federal government to protect the sovereignty of our borders. And the federal government has either chosen to not do that or has failed to do that for a multitude of reasons for going on many years now. There are elements of the DREAM Act that I would support but what I think I find extraordinarily troubling is this. The DREAM Act has been brought before Congress a number of times over the last three, four, five years. It has not passed Congress. And the reason that it has not passed is it does not represent the will of the people. If it did, it would have passed through Congress. And it troubles me deeply that this executive, President Obama, has taken that authority upon himself. It was not his prerogative through executive order to override the will of the people. And that is precisely what he's done in this. He said, Congress won't pass this. I will take that power and myself and implement myself through executive orders, uh, policies which are contrary. That's what troubles me as much as anything. Immigration is an extraordinarily important issue. There's no question about that. And there's no question that, frankly, we have failed to address this in an appropriate manner. And this administration, troublingly, has used it as a political tool in order to provide rewards to constituents to do things that the, that the nation has not indicated that they would otherwise support. That's the thing that troubles me as much as anything regarding the executive order and the DREAM Act.
0: Thank you. Before we move on to the next question, it's necessary for us to take a break. This is the U.S. Second District Congressional Debate presented by the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service and Utah Public Radio. This debate is also made possible by Southern Utah University's Office of Regional Services and by Southern Utah University. We'll be right back.
8: Support for Utah Public Radio comes from the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service at SUU, providing leadership opportunities, experiential learning, and public policy research for the past 14 years. Online at suu.edu forward slash Levitt Center. And from Southern Utah University's Office of Regional Services and Utah Center for Rural Life. For 25 years, the hosts of the annual Utah Rural Summit... The SUU Office of Regional Services, connecting you to SUU. And from Southern Utah University, providing higher education opportunities in Cedar City for 115 years. The university offers 113 programs of study and nine graduate programs. Online at suu.edu. We're pleased to bring you the second congressional uh, district debate today. And there's another debate coming next week. Here's more on that.
7: What would you ask the candidates for Utah's Lieutenant Governor? Greg Bell and Vince Rampton will be participating in a debate October 31st on the campus of Utah State University in Logan. Utah Public Radio will be broadcasting the debate live and we're taking suggestions for the questions that will be asked during the debate. What exactly does the Lieutenant Governor do? Do they always agree with their running mate's position on issues? Ask them what they're going to do for Utah. This is your chance to get involved in the democratic process. We're accepting comments at upr.org. Go there this week and submit your question.
8: The Lieutenant Governor debate is Wednesday at 1130 a.m. In the meantime, more of this second congressional district debate here on Utah Public Radio.
0: Welcome back to the Sterling R. Church Auditorium on the campus of Southern Utah University to the U.S. Second District Congressional Debate, presented by the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service and Utah Public Radio. Let's proceed to the next question. Should the international community be concerned about a possible Iranian nuclear program? If so, why? Would you favor a first strike against Iran if the present regime was found to have nuclear weapons? Let's begin with Mr. Girard.
5: Right On the international community and Iran, uh, as we're looking at that, um, I am in favor of following the Constitution on this, that we would have a vote there at Congress for a declaration of war, um, depending on what was found with the intelligence that we had. Um, so far, I have not seen any results that would say that we need that declaration as to this date.
6: There was a very good discussion of this the other night at the presidential debate. Uh, Both Romney and Obama gave that fairly extensive answers and responses and they basically said that that would be an absolutely last resort, um, but under those conditions it may have to be a resort. I think it's important to really change how we look at the entire issue of of the Middle East and other places where there's considerable problem and unrest. We have half of the population in the Middle East that's completely disenfranchised and that's the women. Uh, We had this incident just recently where this young lady Malala was shot in the head because she was favoring and promoting education um, and the Taliban wanted to take her out. I think we have not done nearly enough to foster education in the Middle East, Indigenous within education, rather than a lot of military aid and military assistance. Um, And I think that could do wonders, and not only foster the education, but foster those searching and trying for freedom, the rebels and the freedom fighters and so forth, not with arms, but with moral um, uh, speaking out and endorsement and support. Um, The Iranian Revolution could have worked. It didn't, but it may work again.
0: Okay, Mr. Kimball.
2: With regards to a first strike, I don't know that I would support a first strike initiative on the part of the United States. Um, Not that I don't think Iran's uh, getting a weapon is is not a a concern, I believe that it is. But I, I'm also war-weary. War I'm, I'm tired. I've known most of my adult life has been in war, and I, I don't know that it has worked. Um, I think that there are other ways that we need to go about creating an environment where we can have a dialogue, where we, where we can build a, nation, uh, a global consensus on how to deal with rogue nations. And I believe that through that, education, through fostering communication through working on jobs initiatives throughout all the work, that we can solve some of our problems without having to launch a weapon. Mr.
3: Stewart. You know, your, your question was how concerned should we be, and the answer is very, very concerned. And I think this is an example of where a candidate with some national security and some military experience can really be beneficial. Mitt Romney said it best the other night when he said that a nuclear equipped Iran is one of the most, is the most significant strategic threat that we face as a nation, and I absolutely agree with that. If they were to achieve their objectives, And there's no question, despite their denial, there's no question that that's what they're trying to do here. It changes everything for us from a national security perspective. It changes our our world strategy. It changes things within the intelligence community. It changes everything with our military doctrine. And frankly, it changes a lot with our energy policy as well. No one wants to avoid war in this area more than I do. As a former military member, I can tell you I've had deep personal experience with the, uh, with the stress and the sacrifice that is put upon our military families because of deployments and this long protracted engagement that we have been in. I understand that. I get that. I want to avoid that. But if you're war-weary now, then imagine how war-weary we would be If we allow Iran to achieve this goal and to threaten our our forces in the region and to threaten our allies in the region, it's untenable. The way to avoid that is to preclude them from achieving the weapon, and we have to do that. It's absolutely critical that we do that.
0: Thank you. Mr. Sigmiller.
4: I also believe that um, uh, having Iran uh, equipped with nuclear weapons would be a a terrible thing for this, this world and that we need to do everything in our power to prevent that from happening. Um, I think that uh, a first strike option should be in our arsenal, but I think it should be a very last resort um, option. I think that we need to work with with our allies and, and try to find other ways to prevent them from getting that nuclear capability.
7: question will begin with you. Would you vote in favor of repealing the Affordable Health Care Act, also known as Obamacare, and why or why not?
6: No, I would not be in favor of that at all. And we've been struggling in this nation for the last 20 or 30 years to improve the healthcare system. There's a good interview in USA Today today about from the head of Kaiser Permanente in California about how they deal with it. It's a great example on how healthcare should be delivered, organized, and, and paid for. Um, the Obama, Obamacare was an enormous, um, complicated act with a lot of lobbyist input and a lot of compromises. Um, it could have been and should have been perhaps much better but given the nature of Congress, and the nature of the lobbyists, and the money flowing through Congress, that was the best that could be done at that time. There are some really good things in the act, Um, and those things are very popular, and they should not be repealed, because everyone who promotes repealing it, including some people at this table, don't have any substitute in mind other than to go back to business as usual, which was a really broken, uh, really compromised health care system. So no, let's modify and improve Obamacare, use it as a base, but not repeal it.
7: Thank you. Mr. Kimball?
2: No, I would not re- uh, appeal the Affordable Care Act for a number of reasons. I, I actually work in health care. Um, th- the, the notion that uh, we now cover pre-existing conditions, that we cover children, that we cover women, people with disabilities, that we can cover contraception, is uh, contraceptives, excuse me, uh, laudable, frankly. There, it, it shows that we, as a nation, are willing to move forward. Teddy Roosevelt was the first person who brought up the idea of creating a healthcare system in this country, and it's taking us a hundred years to get to that point. Um, for me, health care, well care, if you want to call it well care, is part of our national security. We spend so much money on keeping people from getting sick that we should be really spending that money on getting, making people well and give, giving them a healthy lifestyle. So no, I would not afe- a- appeal the Affordable Care Act. I think it's a good start. I think that there are things that need to be done to amend it, but it's a good start. Absolutely,
3: I would repeal it. I think it's one of the worst pieces of legislation ever written. Uh, As a small business owner who struggles to provide insurance for my employees and good insurance, I understand that there's problems there. But uh, Obamacare makes those problems much worse. It's like if you're laying in bed with cancer and someone shoots you in the leg and hopes that fixes the problem, it doesn't. It just makes it worse. And there are things that we could do, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about some of that tonight. But you ask about Obamacare. Here's the realities of it. Obamacare takes $716 billion from Medicare and shifts that over to Obamacare. You can't support Medicare and Obamacare at the same time. That's a big chunk of change, $716 billion out of Medicare. It also, and this isn't talked about very often, and I'm surprised that it's not, Obamacare will institute $253 billion in new taxes in 2013. And that's just getting started. It will be much, much more than that every subsequent year. And many of those new taxes, ironically, fall on some of the sickest and the poorest Americans. Obamacare doesn't help that. It makes it worse. We can replace it with things that will help. There are market reforms that will help. Tort reform will help. Adding portability and being able to buy insurance across state lines. There's many, many market ideas that would help this situation. But again, you've got to start from a clean slate. I just don't see you fixing this thing. There are some elements of of Obamacare that I support, again. But I think we have to start with a new piece of legislation, which is why I think Mitt Romney is exactly right. Allow waivers for all 50 states the day he comes into office and start again.
7: Thank you.
4: Thank you. Uh, I was, I watched the whole um, process of creating um, the Affordable Care Act and, and I don't like the way the process worked. Uh, I think that um, there are a lot of good things in, in the Affordable Care Act that I think we need to keep and that's why I would not repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, I look at it as we need to take out the things that we don't like in it. And there are some things that are going to affect small businesses that I I think we do need to take out. I think there are things that we need to do to um, control the the spiraling costs of health care that weren't addressed but could have been addressed in this. Um, What I'd like to do is ask Chris, if he's uh, successful in repealing the Affordable Care Act, what he's going to tell that mother of the 24-year-old who has cancer that is no longer going to be going to be covered under their insurance? Um, that is something. These are some of the consequences of repealing the bill would 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 cause, and we need to look at that. And that's why I'm happy to see that, that both Romney and and Obama both are saying that they would not repeal the bill, but they would change the bill.
0: Uh, I will uh, allow that after everyone has a chance to respond to the question.
5: I also would repeal Obamacare. Congress is not authorized by its governing document, the Constitution, to be able to provide this service for the American people. It could be done at a state level. It could be done at a city level, a county level. Um, Let me share one quick story with you. Uh, I work for a small business, and there's anywhere from... 5 to 15 people employed by any time over the last 20 years. And we had our health insurance provided by our business for a period of time there. And as I was there, I noticed that the cost of my health insurance was significantly high. Um, When the economy turned down, uh, about 2008, we went to a private insurance. Individual insurance for each of us, and I noticed that there was a significant decrease in the cost of my care. Um, the reason why is because people have diseases that go into the millions of dollars at the bill. I had a son that was uh, put onto, well, it was premature by nine weeks, and as such, I know the cost of the medical bills there. However, we did this on private insurance; we were able to pay for the bills, and. I just think that the costs with Obamacare are going to start to go up soon. Thank you.
0: Mr. Stewart, because you were specifically referenced uh, in Mr. Sigmiller's uh, response, I'll allow uh, 30 seconds for you to respond.
3: 30 seconds. Have to talk quick then, right? Look, there's elements of Obamacare that many people support, Democrats and Republicans. One of them is allowing people to stay on their insurance till they're 26. My children are taking advantage of that. And a lot of them is uh, providing a vehicle for people with pre-existing conditions. There's bipartisan support for those ideas But Obamacare is a terrible terrible vehicle to fix those two problems It's incredibly expensive it takes money out of Medicare and yeah We can provide some services because of that But what do you tell those many people like my parents who survived on Medicare that they have taken? More than 700 billion dollars out of that and you can't take that chunk of money out of Medicare and pretend that We're going to provide the same services to the senior citizens among us and those who are relying on that
0: Moving on to the next question uh, and I'll direct this uh, to mr. Kimball first For the first time in our nation's history the national debt exceeds 16 trillion dollars Are you in favor of a balanced budget amendment? and what specific actions would you take if elected to reduce the federal deficit?
2: You know, I've been asked that question a lot, and um, a balanced budget amendment on the federal level, I would have to look at the components of the legislation because in times of an economic downturn, deficit spending in order to create jobs to help try to spur the economy is absolutely necessary to fix the national debt. A couple of things that I, I um, that have considered. I, would in, I, would, I think I would impose a uh, speculative tax on Wall Street so the next time they d- decide to engage in uh, dangerous practices that there's a cost associated with that. I would look at um, ending as much base, uh wasteful spending as I possibly could. I would inc- I would close a number of corporate lo- loopholes. I would end the amount of money that Exxon gets in in, form, in the form of a subsidy, as the amount of money that Pfizer gets in a subsidy, and the amount of money that Cisco gets in the, in the form of a subsidy. And I would try to return some of that money towards paying down the debt. I also agree with a uh, tax and dividend on uh, dirty energy, where, the, where that dividend goes towards paying down the debt. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Stewart. Yes, uh, you know, as a former military officer, I can look around the world, and as I
3: said earlier, we still live in a dangerous world, but I don't lie awake at night worrying about uh, foreign threats. The thing that scares me the most is that we are committing national suicide by our financial irresponsibility, by our debt. It's unsustainable, it will destroy us as a nation if we don't uh, change the path that we're on. We are, uh, sometime last December, coming up on a year ago now, we reached a milestone in our nation's history and that was where our national debt exceeded our entire GDP. Now, that's the definition of broke, and we know that we can't continue down that path. Under this current administration and democratic leadership in Congress, we've gone from about $10 trillion in debt to $16 trillion. We've had $1.2, $1.1, $1.4 trillion deficits every year for the last four years. And we can't just pretend that that won't matter. I have a degree in economics. I understand certain things, and we can't say, yeah, but we're the United States. We can get above and around these things, you can't. We have to control our debt and our spending. You can't raise enough taxes from the rich and from the upper class to fix this thing. If you think you can fix this thing by raising taxes, you're simply economically not right. It has to be where we cut cap and balance. I absolutely support a balanced budget amendment. Cut cap and balance 18.5 percent of GDP, which is where we historically have been. It would allow us to provide the needed services that our citizens require, but allow us to take time of our or to take care of the problem of our debt as well.
0: Mr. Sick-Miller.
4: Um, I, I served in the Utah State Legislature, and we, we had to balance our budget there. Um, I have to balance my budget at home, and I, th- I think it's, it's only fair that we should be looking to balance our budget on the federal government. Uh, there are some concerns that, that have to be considered in the time of war or a time of, of you know, tragic events where we may have to have some leeway there. But I think otherwise we should have a balanced budget, and so I, I would support um, the right type of balance, balanced budget amendment um, as far as trying to deal with our our deficit problem again i think one of the key things that we can do is get people back working and my jobs plan which involves bringing uh, lowering the tax on uh, money that the private corporations are holding overseas um, allowing them to bring that back and incentivizing them to create jobs with it would, would be a good start to increasing revenues, which would help to deal with the deficit. I think there's a lot of other things that we can do. I think we need to have a very balanced approach. I think the Simpson-Bowles approach was, was a, a good uh, example of what we could do. Unfortunately, we were unable to pass that, and, um, but I would have supported it and voted for it. I think um, we have to do a balanced approach to this. We can't just... We can't let sequestration take effect, uh, where it just cuts across the board, everywhere, and uh, my time is up.
5: I support a balanced budget amendment. Um, We need to also, along with this, remove the automatic budget increases that happen on a yearly basis in uh, many of the department's budgets. Um, It's not anything that they have raised. They just say, we're going to get a certain amount every new year on top of what we had the previous year. I think that needs to be addressed. I also think that along with uh, achieving a balanced budget, we also need to trim federal government to its constitutional role um, and allow the programs that are now being done by federal government to be given back to the states or the counties, the cities, or even the individuals to take
6: care of them. We don't have time for a balanced budget amendment. An amendment to the Constitution takes an incredible amount of time. It will take years to do a balanced budget amendment, even if Congress goes right ahead and and initiates the process. And we really don't have that time. We have a great plan that was produced in December of 2010, and it's been referred to, the Simpson-Bowles Plan. That plan was, is, a, a blueprint for beginning to solve the problem, both in terms of uh, cutting budgets, uh, including um, the, um, um, the ongoing uh, problem budgets, the, uh, I forget the word for them now, but, uh, and also in terms of enhancing revenues. Uh, that plan is there, it's called a moment of truth, Google it and you'll see all the details in it. It's, it's, it's the blueprint. The Spectrum will be uh, publishing a a voter's guide this weekend in which all five of us uh, have contributed and answered this question in writing. So I would urge you to look at that. I also feel that um, on the revenue side, we have to go back to a progressive tax system and we have to uh, deal with endorsing high-speed transaction Wall Street fees which would help stabilize Wall Street as well as help generate some revenues. And there's much more, look at the spectrum.
0: Thank you, let's move on to the next
7: question. The next question, it will begin with Stuart. It is, which is a greater danger? American retreat from the world or American overextension? Great
3: question because they both frankly have some threats and some downsides to them, but I think the answer is very, very clear. I started in, in my opening statement, and one of the opening uh, questions, quoting Abraham Lincoln, we are the last best hope of Earth. And that was true when he said it, and it's true right now. There are tens of millions of people around the world who look to us, not only as an example, but they look to us as the last best chance that they have to live under any greater freedom or any other greater economic uh, freedom. I met someone in Morocco once and I don't have time to tell the experience but it was a very powerful reminder to me that there are, we believe in American exceptionalism, those of us in this room, those of us listening on the radio, but there are millions of people around the world who believe in American exceptionalism as well. They recognize that we are the light of the world. They want us to stand up to that responsibility. If JFK had been able to give the speech that he had prepared in Dallas that that, that fall afternoon, he said there's a line there that I love We, this nation, this generation, not by choice, but by destiny, are set to be the watchmen on the wall of world freedom. That is a responsibility that we have to the world. If the United States fails, how long do you think it will be till the world follows? A few days, a few weeks, a few months. We are the cement holding freedom and democracy together around the world. That is the greater threat that we face.
4: I think that it's, it's very important that we take care of our, our problems here at home. But I think we also have to um, keep a m- very watchful eye on what's going on around the world and be an active player in what's going on around the world. Um, we've got to balance that very carefully. But we do have to take care of our problems here at home.
7: Gerard?
5: Yes. Um, there's two different issues that we're looking at here, uh, with the world, um, going, well, retreating from the world militarily. I think that's an idea that we need to be considering because our forces are spread too thin. We were never meant to be the policemen of the world, and so we need to protect our borders here now. On the other side of this, though, is we need to also go out into the world uh, with our principles and values. They are the Constitution is a remarkable document. It gave us the best government that we have seen in history and with that we need to be sharing that with others. You watch our military go out and as it does so they say they are spreading democracy throughout the world but why are not they not spreading what we have which is a representative republic knowing that our rights come from God and that they are inalienable versus our rights coming from government and this is the type of governments we've set up in the other world. So I think we need to both retreat and to um, well, my time's up.
6: We are a, a model and in a sense a beacon for many of the peoples in the world, particularly peoples who are ideologically oppressed and um, and, and, and religiously oppressed and, and so forth. Um, so I do think we have to espouse those values, but not just espouse them. We have to actually live them and we have to make them available in a wide sense. So I said earlier about educating women and educating people who are ideologically oppressed. I think we have to really do that in a major way and we do that with all levels of government showing that kind of, of leadership. Um, there's a great documentary that nobody has seen called How to Start a Revolution by a fellow named Gene Sharp who was, um, his books, he was responsible in large part for stimulating the people in Yugoslavia and other places, including Egypt and and some of the so-called Arab Spring, into moving ahead with their revolution. I think we need to do far more to encourage that, give it moral support and non-military support And I just don't think we're doing enough of that. Those peoples will take care of themselves if we just give them the leadership and the moral stimulation that they would like to hear from us and see from us.
2: Kimball? Whether we retrench or we overreach. I worry more about overreach. I worry about the fact that it seems on some level to exhibit a bunch of hubris to say that we are the last great hope of this planet. Considering when the rest of the world looks upon us, they see political unrest, they see social unrest, they see our education ranked seventeenth in the world. They see income disparity that is staggering. They see rights, women's rights being abridged. They they look at our school our public school system of which ninety percent of them of our kids are educated in decaying. They look at an infrastructure system that's 50 years old and no one wants to have a conversation about it. So I think that what we, when we talk about overreach, we're really talking about militarily. And I would rather bring that money back, bring our ideals back, and exhibit some of those ideals here at home and let that be the example to their world.
0: Thank you. You're listening to the U.S. 2nd District Congressional Debate on Utah Public Radio. We're coming to you live from the Sterling Church Auditorium on the campus of Southern Utah University in Cedar City. Those participating, uh, we once again welcome you to Cedar City and thank you for uh, taking the time to be here. Just to introduce uh, to our listening audience, once again, the participants in this debate, Mr. Kimball, Charles Kimball is an independent in this second congressional district race. Chris Stewart is the Republican candidate in the race. Jay Sigmiller is the Republican, excuse me, the Democratic uh, candidate uh, for the second congressional district. Jonathan Girard is the candidate from the Constitution Party and also an independent, Joseph Andrade. It's necessary for us to take another break, and uh, we'll return with more from Cedar City right after this.
8: You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSUFM HD1 Logan. Support comes from Southern Utah University's Office of Regional Services and Utah Center for Rural Life. For 25 years, the hosts of the annual Utah Rural Summit, the SUU Office of Regional Services, connecting you to SUU. And from the Michael O. Levitt Center for Politics and Public Service at SUU, providing leadership opportunities, experiential learning, and public policy research for the past 14 years. Online at suu.edu forward slash Levitt Center. And from Southern Utah University, providing higher education opportunities in Cedar City for 115 years. The university offers 113 programs of study and nine graduate programs online at suu.edu.